lives. And again, passing the peace, encouraging one another. Again, it's not a transition time. It's a part of our worship. We're called to gather together, not just to hear me talk. Lord help if that's the only reason you're here. But to encourage one another. To see one another. To, to take the time to not merely just fill a seat, but really to seek to, to fulfill the call to be a church that knows one another and fellowships with one another. And certainly that can't fully take place in this gathering. And our whole church's structures built around that conviction. But it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It doesn't mean it can't be a launch point. So I hope these little intermit the time we take to encourage one another before the gathering, in the middle and after, leads to, to many more lunches, coffees, and calls during the week. And we're, we do this because of what we're seeing here in the book of Matthew is that when Jesus comes into the world, it, it comes into a world that is a mess, that's full of brokenness, that's full of sin, that's full of suffering. And yet in that darkness, as we read in the Gospel of John already, the light of God has shone, and it is greater than the darkness. This morning as we look into Matthew, one of the things that makes it really distinct from Luke is this is telling this story from Joseph's perspective. And it's going to shape a lot of how we look at the text this morning. And for a lot of us, Joseph is kind of like maybe a throwaway character, if we're honest, in the Christmas story. He kind of just sits there. Maybe if you were Joseph in the Christmas play, you didn't really have any lines. You know, you just kind of were there and maybe we forget him. And so a lot of how we look at this text this morning is going to be shaped from a, from a couple perspectives around that, just to, to help you see where we're going, because we probably won't have time. And that one side of this is, is authorial intent. What I mean, that, that when we read the scriptures, we need to ask ourselves, what did the author of this text want to convey? Like it wasn't written by a robot. And although we believe in the divine inspiration of the scriptures, we believe that that took place through men and women who experienced God, through men who, who, who wrote out of their own personality and their own stories. And the Spirit superintended that so that we get truth. At the same time, we believe that the Bible is said to be living and active. This is why we can read these Christmas stories every year. And you might be like, I never saw that before. And you also might be like, that never meant that much to me before. And as we look into this text, that's certainly what's happened to me. And I want to encourage you to go there with me. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just or righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from the sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, he took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope of the incarnation of your son Jesus that we celebrate as Christmas. We pray today, God, that you would help us by the Spirit to not only read your word well, but to be read by it. We pray, God, right now that we would be worshiping you with our hearts and our minds and our, and our whole selves as much as we have already and as much as we will this week. May we engage with you now, God, through your truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify your people in truth. We ask this in the one who is truth, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. 
Well, many of you are familiar with the, the, the story, the play, Les Miserables, or as we call it where I come from, Les Miserables. And if you're not familiar with this story, this actually one is that I can generally endorse, at least for the adults, because it's a powerful story of how grace and mercy transform someone's life. In this story, there's a man by the name of Jean Valjean. He's a guilty man who stole bread, and we, and we learn he stole bread so that he could feed his family. But his life has been led within a world, within a system that has only brought down upon him exacting justice. He's lived in a world where the authorities, the powers that be, the people in his life always wanted justice, justice, justice to the letter of the law. It's left him bitter, hard, and calloused. And when he's finally released from his sentence, he is so hardened and calloused, he doesn't want to care. He doesn't want to show mercy to anyone else because no one has ever shown mercy to him. So he's kind of alone, a, a criminal, a convict with nowhere to go, and he finds himself on a cold night being taken in by a priest. This priest and his wife show mercy to Jean Valjean by letting him stay there. When they, but, but what they find is they're awakened in the middle of the night by a knock on the door through the police. What they find out is that Jean Valjean had repaid their mercy by stealing from them. So here he is at the door, the police are there, they have him, they're ready to bring the hammer down, he's been caught red-handed, he's stolen all of their silver, their, their, their silverware, their plates, it's, he's busted. And so they come to the priest's door and they say, hey, this guy has your stuff, we know it's yours, it was marked in a way that they knew it was yours. And this is how the priest responds in a way that makes this story really take off is instead of him saying, yes, punish him. Instead, he goes and gets the rest of the silver and says, you forgot these. You forgot these. And then he turns and says some eloquent line you can go read yourself about, with this mercy, I have bought your life. Now go and live differently. As much as I'm not doing it justice, it's this beautiful picture of how the power of grace and mercy can change the course of a person's life. And the same is true in this room today. Mercy can change everything in your heart, in your story, in your marriage, in your missional community. But mercy is hard. It's easy for us to watch a movie or hear some story about someone showing great mercy, but mercy can be very confusing. If you're like me, even in hearing that story, your mind starts to say, but, 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 yeah, 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 but what if, what if, what if? Mercy is really hard when it's confusing, and mercy is really hard when it costs you, when you've been hurt deeply. When other people are not safe. When in your story, mercy has been used to manipulate so that people can continue not to be changed, but actually to harm you. Mercy is not some bland, sentimental subject. Mercy is a radical idea. In our country right now, Things are crazy. And if you were to look around, the word that you would not use to describe how people choose to relate with one another is merciful. No, you get the vibe that mercy is only going to put you in a place of weakness so that other people have the upper hand on you. There's no assuming the best. There's no listening. There is no mercy. And we are breathing that in in ways that we maybe don't even realize. And unless we can own that, we're not going to be able to resist it. I know in my own life is mercy gets complicated because I love the idea of mercy when I need it. All of us in here want people to be merciful to us while we sit in the judgment seat on others. Yet the whole story of God from Genesis to Revelation is one of very scandalous mercy. 
confusing mercy at times. Mercy that doesn't seem to make sense. And yet we see here in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, I think it's a matter of authorial intent. I'm going to argue for that this morning from the text. That Jesus is entering the world through the door of mercy. That Matthew here is not simply wanting just to give us some quick details about the Christmas story. That if we know anything about Matthew's story, and we know anything about the book of Matthew, it is saturated with the mercy of God for the undeserving. Our text says, notice verse 18, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. Again, I think the way... At least in part, if not with great power, is the way of mercy. It's no surprise that we're called to follow Jesus in the way and as the way of mercy. Whatever confusion that might bring to our lives that isn't perfectly resolved in this life. And whatever that may cost us. Mercy is costly. But we need to bring mercy into the middle of Christmas if we are to be truly followers of Christ. Why do we need to bring mercy into the middle of Christmas? Why do we need to be so intentional about it? The first thing is because the problem of mercy is often so much more than we were ready for. This is the first thing we see. Joseph is asked to give more mercy than he was ready for. Notice the plan here. They're going to get married. So to understand this text and why it's talking about divorce, we need to realize that the way that marriage, getting married took place in this culture is first there was like an engagement period where are we going to get married or we might even say an arrangement period in, in, in many cases. You weren't really like choosing. There wasn't really like a dating. And then there was a betrothal period which lasted about a year. During this betrothal period, the 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 people still live separately in their own homes, particularly the wife or to be wife, but it was you were already together contractually. So it wasn't like our engagements where you just have a ring. It was you have already made a commitment. But that commitment has just not yet been consummated through intercourse and living together. And you got to think, even then, people knew, oh, this is going to be hard. Most people believe that Mary was a teenager, maybe even as young as 14 years old. The text doesn't say that. Some people speculate about Joseph's age, but even if he was older, most people believe he was probably still in that late teens or at least 20, early 20s range. So marriage is going to be hard. Maybe ready for that. But then there's a big problem that takes place here that's going to make this even harder. And in Joseph's mind, maybe impossible. And that is, she's found to be with child. As, as big a deal as this might be, even in Cleveland, Tennessee in the 21st century, in the ancient Near East, in small town ancient Near East, this was an even bigger deal. This would have been a public scandal like we cannot even imagine. Here was this young, teena pregnant teenager who by all appearances has been unfaithful to the one to whom she was betrothed. This was a public disgrace on her, a public disgrace on him, a public disgrace on her family, on his family. This was huge. This would have been a shame for life for her. And for all that associated with her. And so Joseph's response, we see, is that he was a just man. The same word behind that in the original language is he was a righteous man. It could just as easily be translated that. He was a righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Now this is where our text takes off in this direction. If we read the rest of the book of Matthew that really is pointing us beyond maybe anything that we would anticipate in this language of righteousness or justice. He is a righteous man, and so he wants to put her away quietly. Wait a minute. What did the law of God say that you did to fornicators? You stoned them. You shamed them. 
Deuteronomy 22, if you want to go and read that. This would be the pharisaical application of justice and righteousness. The Pharisees who heard this story, who knew this story, would not say that Joseph was a just and righteous man. And yet Joseph is doing the best that he can here. He's righteous because he does want to, he's like, well, I do need to divorce her. I won't go into all the details of what divorce meant at that time during betrothal period versus during a marriage period, but there were certificates of divorce that could be issued. So he wants to be righteous and just in saying, well, I'm, I'm not going to marry her. She's evidently been unfaithful to me. And if you want to throw in this part about the Holy Spirit, and she's insane, I mean, what are we going to do? Just walk around and say, trust me, guys, she, she didn't really do it. It was the Holy Spirit. I mean, how would you respond if somebody told you today, I'm pregnant, but, you know, we never had sex. Oh, okay, okay. So he's just and righteous in that way that he is going to not participate in such a shameful situation, and yet there's this mercy that is fused in here that he doesn't want her to be publicly disgraced. Now, ultimately, he might not have been able to control what happens next, right? That's what's going through my mind. It's like, well, Joseph, no matter how much you might want to put her away quietly, she's going to be walking around with this belly pretty soon. So, ultimately, maybe he couldn't control what happens next. Maybe she dies. Maybe she's disowned by the community. Maybe she has to live the rest of her life as a prostitute because that's how prostitution usually got started in that day. Some type of sexual crime or sexual shame led to this is the only way that I can provide for myself and my family. Maybe all that still happens, but Joseph is saying, I'm not going to participate in it. I'm going to do the best that I can to make sure she's taken care of. There's mercy here. And I think that's, that's the connection because we're going to see Matthew, Jesus is going to say, if you, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. And they are the righteous police. And Jesus is saying, you've got to have a righteousness that exceeds that. And what is the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees? It's mercy. And so a challenge comes from the angel of the Lord in verse 20. The angel of the Lord, not the angel of the Lord, get confused in this. We go to Luke, we know this is Gabriel. This angel from the Lord, of the Lord, says marry her. Now we need to hear when he's saying marry her, what he's saying to do is I want you to align yourself with this woman. I want you now to, to stand with her in whatever shame may come. Yeah, she got pregnant during the betrothal period. Now what's everybody going to assume? Well, Joseph, you must have been unfaithful too. You must be a sinner. Even more though, now the angel of the Lord says, and I, that whole thing about the Holy Spirit, that's true. I want you to live into that public story. So now not just bear the shame, but now everybody's going to think you're crazy. He says, don't fear. Don't fear the thought that she was unfaithful and don't fear a life labeled as a lunatic and maybe to even be treated like a leper. But love her. And there's that little phrase in there that Joseph, son of David, that connects us back to this genealogy where there's this whole history of these unlikely people coming out of these crazy situations where it felt like there's no way anything good could come out of this that God brought his promises in the world. But in all those names, the banner over them is mercy. I remember finding myself standing face to face with a 15-year-old boy with a disability screaming in at him at the top of my lungs because he had so ticked me off. I have always in my life thought that I'm a pretty calm, composed, and merciful person. But, but teaching high school really pushed that to the next level. 
particularly teaching students with emotional and behavior disorders. I have found so many times in my life that God always puts me in situations where I thought I was ready, but I always, I never had the mercy I thought I needed. Y'all have heard me say this before. I remember getting married. I read the books, When Sinners Say I Do. Whatever, all, all the stuff. But it asked more mercy than I had. Pastoring, marriage, children, work, life in general. Do you know what I'm talking about? Is you think you're ready, you think you know about some grace, you think you know about some mercy, and then all of a sudden you and other fallen human people are sharing your life, sharing your stories, and you're just thinking, my mercy has run out. This was not what I was ready for. You're with Joseph, right? Hey, I can handle this. I've got my plan. I'm going to do this and that. I'm going to be just and merciful. And then, and then you read the Bible. If you're like me, you start to say, but Mary's innocent. So it's really not mercy. But you know it takes mercy even to entertain this story. It takes mercy to even listen to somebody. To give somebody the benefit of the doubt. How many times are we like lawyer, judge, and jury in our minds before we sit down with somebody to even listen? We punish people in our minds for crimes that they've not even committed. It takes mercy. Joseph's got to be merciful just to entertain this. I mean, it'd be very easy, right, to just say, that must have been a bad dream because that's crazy. But then Jesus is going to keep expanding this. We turn just a few chapters over to Matthew chapter 5 and we hear this call to a mercy that we're not ready for. You've heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Why? So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he, he makes his son to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Asterisk. Remember what Matthew is. Tax collector. And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than the others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is imperfect. Perfect. So what perfection is not saying like you do everything right. Complete, mature. The height, we could argue this all day long. The height of Christian maturity is the love of your enemy. Do you respond with mercy when people don't do what you want? When people don't give you what you want. When people do the opposite of what you want. When people give you the opposite of what you want. That's where our heart shines forth. It's not about how much theology of mercy you might know. It's not how much how psychology that you might know. What you do in the face of your enemy reveals the height of your maturity as a follower of Christ. It is no coincidence this story of Jesus through this author of Matthew takes this perspective of Jesus entering the world in this way. Mercy is not at odds with justice. It's not ignoring the truth. Mercy is not undoing everything we just took 10 to 12 weeks to talk about. It's not denying your feelings. But it's following the Spirit in the face of the reality of a broken world in the way of Christ and not giving into the flesh, which always leads us through the power of Satan unto condemnation, whether self-condemnation or others' condemnation. But the way of the Spirit leads us to, to a truth that is working towards reconciliation. It's not denying your voice 
But it's also not equating your voice with God's voice and silencing others' voice. It's not letting people bully you, but it's not becoming a bully to face a bully. Mercy's not playing God, not writing people off without listening, not excusing our bitterness, not jabbing or detaching. Mercy is when you say, you hurt me, but I'm not going to do what I need to do to make you feel hurt in return. Mercy's saying, vengeance is the Lord. Mercy is choosing to not give someone what they deserve. Your list of how much they deserve it can be ever how long you want it to be. But mercy says, so? This is, this is tough. We might could say speaking of mercy is personally, not judicially. So if a person seriously commits a crime, we could see that they need to, to pay the penalty or consequences for that crime. But that does not mean that relationally or personally that we are bound up in bitterness towards them. And I believe that's true. I believe that's probably where we need to land on that. But, but I just want to say, you go and consider this, but when we, read, when we read the life of Jesus, sometimes that even gets confusing. You know, there's this woman here who deserves to be stoned, and Jesus just says, well, you who are without sin cast the first stone. So I'm, I'm still wrestling with that myself. I don't have any conclusions to give you all on that. So I think it's mainly personally, not judicially, but Jesus, he, he messes with that a little bit too sometimes. Mercy is Grace's sister, and if not an identical twin, that's definitely a biological one. Mercy is assuming the best, it's compassion for those in need, it's relief of debt. Mercy is patience, forgiveness, charity, constructive conflict. So when I ask you, in view of Joseph's story, in view of where you find yourself, when has mercy in your life called for more than you were ready for? In your past? But even more today, in your present? Where is God saying, I want you to give mercy? And you're saying, you're asking too much. I wasn't ready for that. I don't know why I say this line so often, but I just still think it's profound from Mike Tyson, right? We all have a plan. Everybody has a plan till they get punched in the throat, punched in the mouth. Mercy. Joseph's got a plan. He's punched in the mouth. All of us in here probably want to be merciful, gracious, kind people. Some of you, it's in a relationship with a friend. Some of you, it's in your marriage maybe right now. Some of you, it's at your work. Some of you, it's in the church. You're just like, I got no more mercy. Give. But we don't need Gabriel to come down right now and speak to us. Jesus has spoken through his word. In Matthew 5, 7, he says, Blessed are the merciful. He tells us as he tells the disciples in that same sermon that he shares that we've referenced, you're, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees. So if you think you're super righteous because you're always eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, exacting person, Jesus is saying, I want more, I want mercy. In Matthew 12, when the disciples eat on the Sabbath, Jesus says, guys, mercy. In Matthew 23, when he's coming against the Pharisees and he's giving them all these woes, he's saying, you, you tithe your spice racks. But what about justice and mercy? And at Matthew's table in Matthew chapter 9, the namesake of our church, the Pharisees are looking on and they're seeing Jesus and his disciples eating and around a table breaking all the boundary laws of their Jewish identity. Jesus doesn't say, y'all are too strict with your Bible. No, he says, you don't, you're not strict enough. You don't understand it. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. 
This is the way Jesus entered the world then, and it's really how he enters the world now. If you want Jesus to be more profound in your relationships, your marriage, your friendships, your family, with your children, with your parents, with your co-workers, the doorway to that growth is always going to be saturated with a lot of mercy. Dave Harvey says this, have you, dragged some, have you dragged someone into the courtroom of me lately? Here's some questions he said he learned to ask in the battle with this self-righteousness. Am I self-confident that I see the supposed facts clearly, like just me? Am I quick to assign motives when I've been wrong? Do I find it easily to build a case against someone that makes me seem right and he or she seem wrong? Do I ask questions with built-in assumptions I believe will be proven right? Or do I ask impartial questions, the kind that genuinely seek new information, regardless of its implications for my preferred outcome? Am I overly concerned about who is to blame for something? Am I able to dismiss questions like these as irrelevant? He says, if any of these resonate with you, we might be ensnared in the sin of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness doesn't just show up when people sin against us. It also expresses itself when we encounter the weaknesses of others. Whether it's sin, whether it's wounding, whether it's Satan, we're going to be asked to give mercy beyond what we were prepared for. But that's the call of Jesus. That's the way of Jesus. And so we need some good news here if you're like me. We need the good news that we're not saved by our acts of mercy. We need the good news that there's a gospel for, for people who aren't always merciful. People who thought they were merciful, but then they got to the end of their mercy rope and found themselves hanging with, with thinking they're going to just fall. Like, do I lose my faith now? Do I lose my relationships now? Because the, I, this, this is more than I can handle. So this is good news, what we see next in verses 21 through 22, really, or through 23, is that the power for mercy is also more than we expected. So the need to give mercy is going to put us in situations that more than we were ready for, but the power for mercy is more than we bargained for. Jesus brings more mercy than they expected and more mercy than we expected. You will bear a son and you will call his name Jesus. Yeshua, or Joshua. We're not Hebrews, so we don't always read the Bible this way, but that was not like a new name, like y'all are afraid to name your kids Jesus. They weren't afraid to name their kids Jesus back then. There's lots of kids named Jesus in the ancient Near East. And in Mexico, Jesus, right? It's, it's Joshua, but it's, it, it means the Lord is salvation. It means that in this baby, the, all of the promises of God are going to find their fulfillment. If you go read to the end of the book of Joshua, you'll see a verse that surprises you. After all of these chapters about who gets the land, it says, and all the promises of God to Abraham were fulfilled. And then you keep reading the story and you're like, well, that's yes and no, right? They were and they weren't. We, we all know as we're reading through Joshua and we're reading the rest of the Old Testament is, yes, this happened, but there's more that comes. Jesus is the more that comes. The true and better Joshua who will bring salvation to his people, but it will be a mercy greater than anything they experienced in the Old Testament time. Because Jesus' is coming is the one who doesn't merely bring a salvation and a security that is dependent on our faithfulness and obedience, but a salvation and security that's all rooted in his faithfulness and obedience. And if we need that borne out more, we see the explanation for the name, the description, the definition. Why is he going to be called the Lord is salvation? It's because he will save his people from their sins. That may sound like no duh talk to us, but I guarantee you, if you read the book of Matthew and you understand what's going on, the people were not looking for someone to come and save them from their sins. Guess what they were looking for? Someone to come and save them from their enemies. They want somebody to come and save them from what other people have done to them. 
Not to save them from the evil that is in them. Wow, mercy just got a lot bigger. These people are living under exile in their own country, oppressed by a cruel foreign government. Jesus was not the only person to be crucified. Crucifixion was the public shaming and intimidating tool of the Roman government because people were used to walking around and seeing anybody that would defy Rome hanging and crying out, gasping for air on a cross, sending a very clear message, Jews, don't mess with us. You may have your little book that tells you this is your land, but we own it here. And what they want in all this intertestamental period between the Old Testament and New Testament is they're looking for a Messiah to come, a Christ to come, but they're looking for him to come and crush their enemies. And Jesus is announced as the one who will save his people from their sin. Because the root of all that has led them into that situation and all that surrounds it, both the sins of Rome and the sin of Israel, is the rebellion against God. Jesus is coming into this world to do something radically far far deeper than they imagine and sometimes maybe we imagine. The incarnation, that is, God becoming flesh in Christ, is leading to Jesus identifying with the people of Israel. The son of Abraham, the son of David, who will bring through his identification a sacrifice for sin. The better Adam, the better Abraham, the better Joshua, the better David will go to the cross And on the cross, he will bear the sin of the world. He will take the sin away, as we've read. He will purify his people. The fancy words, there's propitiation. He bears the wrath of God for us, the justice we deserve. There's expiation. He takes it away and removes it as far as the east and the west. But then there's also purification. He makes his people holy. which leads then to a transformation. This was bigger than they expected, and it's bigger than we think of at times when we think of this issue of mercy. They hoped for a Messiah who would bring vengeance against their enemies, but they got one who brought mercy to all sinners, starting with themselves. This is going to challenge Israel to its core. A Messiah who isn't interested, first and foremost, about crushing their enemies and about liberating from their political oppression, but out saving them from the sin of their foe. As Jesus hangs on the cross before Rome and Israel, before the world, as it were, they kill him because he's so merciful. If he would have just been like the Pharisees, he would have been safe. But he stepped into the costly path of mercy and he dies on a cross. And what does he say as they kill him for his love for them and mercy? His scandalous mercy. He says, Father, forgive them. If that doesn't mess with your views of righteousness and justice, I don't know what will. If there was ever a time in the history of the world where it should have been, Father, let them have it. They finally proved how bad they were. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. That would have been the time. And instead he says, Father, forgive them. This is why, as we see in verse 23, this is no mere man. This is the fulfillment of this prophecy. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means... God with us. He is the God man. We could talk all day long about how you understand that fulfillment 
In Isaiah chapter 7, this son is to be born. This son will not be God, but he will be a sign that God is with the people of Israel. He will be, though, as Isaiah 9 comes, it starts to stretch. He will be the everlasting father, the, the good, the wonderful counselor, the king of kings, the prince of peace. And then you read Isaiah in chapter 42, he'll be, well now it's the servant of God. Then Isaiah 53, he's the one who, who takes on the sins. The strayed sheep. Isaiah 64 and 65, the one who brings about a new creation. And he does this in the face of an Israel who wants to play God, but his mercy is more because God comes to us in Christ, to be the perfect human we could never be because He is God in the flesh. And to top it all off, if this mercy is not enough, He is Emmanuel. This is amazing. He is God with us. He's not a sign of God's presence. He is God with us. And as we read the story of the gospel, we know He, he becomes through faith God in us, who is God with us. Now, I could think God might want to be like Joseph. Be kind enough to just say, I'm not going to destroy them, but I'll put them away quietly. Maybe some of you in your marriages have said, I don't like them, but I'll just figure out how to live with them. Maybe some of you in the church, in your missional communities, in your fight clubs, as you've said, I got to kind of be around them, but I don't really got to be with them. God says this. I know how all of you are more jacked up than anybody does. Not only am I not going to put you away, I'm going to come and live in you. And I'm going to never leave you or never forsake you. No matter how big your sin gets and your suffering gets and your sorry attitude towards me gets, mercy, 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 mercy. Mercy. Oh, there's so much more way out of time. Skip all that to the last point. Go read the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew chapter 18. It'll back all this up even more. The last part, though, real quick, verses 24 and 25. Bringing mercy into the middle of the meaning of Christmas, not just because we're going to be asked to give more mercy than we got, than we were ready for, and, and ultimately because Jesus gives us more mercy than we ever even dreamed, but the last is because the path of mercy calls for obedience before sight. This is big. I can't, I've left out half of a whole point, but I can't leave this out. The path of mercy will call for obedience before sight, which equals faith. Joseph does it. He obeys. What assurances does he have here other than the word of God? Nothing. As God said, Joseph, this ain't going to be as hard as you think it's going to be. People are going to, it's going to work out this way. People aren't going to judge y'all. People aren't going to shame you. No. He obeys. He believes. He names him Jesus. Joseph placed is, maybe we could say, the first person to place his faith in Christ. The dad got to name the son in this time period. And Joseph says, you do it, God. And Joseph becomes the adoptive father of Jesus. So not in any way to stretch it do we realize Jesus was adopted. Joseph said, I'll, I'll take all that. All that goes on, all that's going to go along with having this boy is mine. We don't know what happens to Joseph in the rest of the story. Kind of disappears. Lots of theory. But there's a lot here that we do know. As he aligns himself with whatever shame and, and we're about to see in the next couple weeks a wild pregnancy and headed to Egypt and threat of life. Joseph says, 
man, I don't got any promises other than the word of God, but I'm, I'm going. Joseph isn't just being nice. Joseph is living by faith in the mercy of God, and it's not in out of trust of anyone else. Some of you in here have your mercy ultimatums. Some of you in here have your mercy contracts. But Jesus is calling you to a mercy just because he is Lord. He's the Lord of mercy. He's given you more mercy than you'll ever be asked to give anyone else. And until you believe that, you won't be able really to give other people mercy. Your flinch will be to be an exacting person who wants to bring the hammer down, who's keeping score, playing self-protection tight. Being mercy is risky. Risky as a church. One person said it this way, you risk being abused and disappointed. He said, one church I served had an annual single parents fair, an event designed to offer assistance to single parents and their children. Every year people would become angry when the school supplies ran out and when the, there was a line. They were being offered free services and everybody started to feel entitled or throw fits. He said, then there's Andy who found who we found trying to use our church as a place to hide from the police. Or there was a young woman in our congregation who was assaulted while trying to care for local prostitutes. Demonstrations of mercy have serious consequences. Let's not be surprised. After all, we're following the one whose mercy cost him his life. Mercy can be lonely. It would be a very lonely place to show mercy to people. Relationally it can be, but also missionally. He said our congregation of recovering drug addicts, alcoholics, former convicts receives criticism. They'll say, I think it's nice what you're doing down there, but I think you're just being taken advantage of. People, he said, accused them of endorsing sin when they welcomed homosexuals. Others accused them of being a front for a drug trade in their community. And then others ignored us because they assumed we had bought into some form of the social gospel. Most never took the time to visit or to get to know us, really. Lonely. Mercy's inconvenient. Very inconvenient. The only way to persevere depends on knowing a God who has displayed mercy to you. So, so much more to say. But what are we going to do? What's faith and obedience going to look like to you on social media? I mean, when people see what you post, do they think, mercy. Look at the mercy flow. I want to know more about where that mercy comes from in such a divided world. When people bring up subjects at work and you talk about them, do they think, mercy? That's a, why, you're such a merciful person. Would people describe you when you've had conflict with them? Would they say, I don't know. That irritates me, but I just feel like that person's merciful. Would your spouse, would your children, would your parents, would your roommate say, this is confusion and costly, but... Mercy. Because that's the life that will demand a gospel explanation. In the story of Jean Valjean, there's the cop who I can't remember his name. Somebody tell me. Javert, thank you. He can't stand it that this guy might be wandering around out there somewhere enjoying his life. And so he makes it his life mission to go and get him. And it ruins the whole thing. I mean, it provides the conflict and makes it interesting. But when I look in the mirror, sometimes I look more like Javert than I do that priest. Hunting down judgment. From some wound maybe in my story, from some unmet expectation, from some disappointment, there's got to be some, he's got to pay. He's got to pay. The world just can't be right. If mercy's in the middle. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're Javert at times. 
People watching the movie aren't saying, go get them. You're not either. In this manger, in this story, Jesus is wanting to set us free. For the good news that we're not saved by our mercy, praise God, but by His. Help us to let others experience some of that freedom that changed the world then and can now. Father, we thank you for your mercy. You are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, full of compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, in a second, we're going to come to the Lord's table, and it is a table of mercy. It's a table where you come to it, and you're going to take the bread. We have a God who became breakable. His body was broken for us. We're going to take the blood. We have a God who loved us so much that, that he became human and he, he died in our place. It's mercy upon mercy. And if you're here and you're not a believer, you're not, you're not called to take this bread and cup. You're called to take Christ. To know him. But if you are, would you just close your eyes for just a second and reflect on a couple things. Don't worry about what's on the screen. Where do I today need to receive God's mercy? Where have I made myself an ex exception? So many times our bitterness towards other people is because we've, we've just not yet fully received all that God's grace and mercy mean for us. Second question is, where do I need to give mercy to other people? Not sweeping something under the rug, but bringing something under the cross. What wounds do I need to deal with so that I can grow in mercy? What idols? What lies? How is Jesus enough for all those? Even if we don't have all the answers to what that looks like today. How might I take the bread and the cup and know however confusing or costly it may be that it has been? Father, now may we participate in Christ together around the table. Amen. Let's come now to the Lord's table. We have three different tables. If you're new here, just follow someone and it will uh, it should make sense.